responsibility in that. And so both the mob, national Israel, in terms of its leadership and its mobdom that it, that it formed at Christ's trial, puts responsibility on them as a people. They rejected Jesus Christ, which was necessary so that we, who are not of the house of Israel, could be grafted in, and this has always been God's plan, that he would die for the world. It was, again, prophetically declared. And we might come to these scriptures and say, well, it was destined, that was, it, was determined, it, was, it was the end, that was the conclusion, and so therefore all of these steps towards that elevation of Christ, which is the resurrection, we're going to be talking a lot more of next week, the resurrection is that day, this is the day, the psalmist said, remember, then the capstone is put on place. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the day. When that day happens, we'll rejoice and be glad in it. And so if there's any chorus that should ever be sung on that day, which is, we call Easter, um, it's that chorus, because it's right out of the psalm. And it's associated with the day Jesus Christ was elevated and placed as the chief cornerstone, as the capstone on the building of God. And so that was necessitated for us. And we're going to get into that in a couple of weeks and next week as well, the impact of his resurrection upon us. But we, the question we want to address really call, falls into line in this verse where it says that this was all done uh, by appointment. And you'll see in the New King James that word appointment and the problem is there is no Greek word for appointment there. The Greek word there is translated in other places differently. And yet for some reason we have it here listed that this was appointed. That there was that, um, let's read the verse here. And we'll go back up to verse 7 to get a running start at this. It says, therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. And uh, we have a, a word here, translated appointed, and we're going to start at that word and work our way backwards in this last half of this verse. Before we get into the next verse and look at those and just contrast that to those who believe. So let's go to the other place where this word is used. Let's go to 2 Peter. It's very close. So it's the same author using the same Greek word. And we're going to uh, look at this one, this use of it. <clears throat> you ready? Here we go. Verse 6 of 2 Peter chapter 2. So we just turned a few pages. Same author. Uh, and let's see if we can find the word appointed in here. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And so we have the use here. We're going to get to this, I don't know, a year or two from now, Lord Terry's. Uh, when we, <laughs> we get to this. And we have the illustration of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you tell me which Greek word, which English word there correlates with the English word appointed in 1 Peter chapter 2. Which word? You're struggling, aren't you? Because they are so dissimilar from each other, you're like, how do you get appointed and this word from the same Greek word? Well, you don't normally, unless you have a leaning towards one position. And the word, by the way, in this verse that is the word translated appointed in 1 Peter 2 is the word condemned. 
The word condemned. God condemned Sodom and Gomorrah. Their sin had gotten to such a stench that as God looked upon it, he said it must be destroyed. It must be judged. And that declaration of judgment is condemnation. I condemn it. It is evil. Sodom and Gomorrah are evil. They had participated in it. And we're not just talking about the, the sensual sin of, of homosexuality that we see placed there in Sodom and Gomorrah to, to such a degree that we call it sodomizing someone if you do that. Uh, but we uh, recognize that it was a whole host of sin. Jesus Christ, or God's word describes Lot as being vexed in his soul every day as he sat at the city gates, being one of the leaders of one of the most wicked cities on the earth. So wicked that God says, I'm going to destroy it. Just They've had their opportunities. And by the way, this isn't going to be the first time that they're really kind of judged. They're already judged to some degree, and they should have woken up. Back then, when they were captured, uh, other kings came down and took the whole valley and, and carried them off as slaves, and all their goods with them, and basically emptied the whole valley there. And it was only because of one man interceding to God on behalf of one other man that they were rescued. And that man was Abraham, remember, who interceded to God to go and deliver Lot. And he went up there with his servants, which was a pretty good group. It wasn't like five guys. They weren't ninjas or anything like that. They, um, he had a pretty good, solid number of hundreds of men, went up there and rescued not just Lot and his family, but all of the kings and people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they come down. So on their home trip from Sodom and Gomorrah, having been already kind of judged by God for their evil, and, and having contact with the man of faith, Abraham, they also have another opportunity to witness something else, and that is a guy named Melchizedek comes in and meets Abram in front of them, and they have all this access to the truth. They have access to Melchizedek, prince of Salem, prince of peace, who comes. You have Abram giving him a tithe of everything. We have the contact with a man of faith, we have all of this going on, this deliverance that they got to participate in. And then we find them in less than one generation from having received that deliverance, still steeped in this horrible sin. Please recognize that. That it wasn't out of the blue that Sodom and Gomorrah got destroyed, condemned. Why were they condemned? They had a penalty and they didn't correct themselves, even though they had access to a man of faith, the, a, a priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek, and witnessed true worship and deliverance. Sound familiar? It should, because this is the history of Israel, too. And so when I take this word from Sodom and Gomorrah about how God condemned them, and now we have a little backstory to Sodom and Gomorrah, and I bring my understanding of this word condemnation and what's entailed there, and we bring it into 1 Peter, now we have a much better understanding, don't we? Because just as Sodom and Gomorrah did not heed, there was a lesser judgment, there was 
a deliverance. There was contact with the Prince of Peace, with the Priest of the Most High God. There was contact with the man of faith. And they still did not change their ways. Now, you go to a place called Nineveh much later. How much of that did they see? They only had one of those, a man of faith, or a priest of the most, a prophet of the Most High God, and they responded, and God kept from destroying them. Sodom didn't respond. And when we go to 1 Peter, who didn't respond? Is this the history of Israel? Yes. God says, I'm going to deliver you out of Egypt. You have contact. They saw God on the mountain. This is the history of Israel. They have this in their past. They were sent prophets. They were sent priests. They had the Shekinah glory. They had the temple of God in their midst. They have the scriptures before them. They have all this access. And yet, instead of it leading to them worshiping the one true and living God and receiving Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their God incarnate, they reject him. And thus, they are condemned. It is their condemnation that we're talking about. But not built upon the eternal plan of God that they should be condemned. Because that would make it impossible for them to receive him. But we find that many did receive him. And many of, I'm convinced that many of those that cried out crucify him probably were part of the early church by the time we get to Acts chapter 2. A few weeks later. So what is this condemnation? Condemnation is that you stumble over God's provision of all this contact. Think of how much contact this generation had with divinity. The direct divine working of God on their behalf. We're not talking about just the three years or so of ministry that Jesus had. Because prior to Jesus' ministry, someone else was ministering. That was John the Baptist. Prior to John the Baptist, we have another ministry. We have the testimony of shepherds, magi, prophets, prophetess, all pointing to not only to, to Christ's birth narrative and the angels declaring it. That's in the history of this generation. And that's not it. We're not done yet. We're going to back up even further and go to the birth narrative of John the Baptist. And that also happened, not down in Bethlehem, not in a secluded corner, but on the Temple Mount. As his dad is made mute, as he is confronted without faith in the testimony of God, and is given nine months to conform himself to, <laughs> and to accept the faith, and he does, and he becomes another prophet of God. And so Israel's had a generation of exposure to, to God, to his working. Not just the miraculous workings of Jesus Christ and, his, and the testimony of his teaching, but they had access to all of that, and they rejected it, and they spurned it. And similarly, now Peter, sometime later, even after the resurrection, says, you're in the same boat. You've had all this testimony. You've had all this evidence. You've had all this fulfilled prophecy. You've had, you have witnessed these things, and you reject him as your Messiah? You are under condemnation. You are under judgment. It is a judgment of God in response to the disobedience of men. And this we want to 
draw out of this. They stumble being disobedient, not because they couldn't believe, but because they wouldn't believe. They wouldn't believe the word of God. And I don't know that that shouldn't maybe need to be a capitalized W. You're disobedient to the word that made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld its glory. But that's John's writing and not Peter's, right? They were disobedient to the word. And this is the fundamental condemnation is that we disobey the truth. We know the truth. All these people knew the truth. They knew it. They were experts at it. They were raised in it. They had it memorized, meditated upon. They knew the truth. But they rejected its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. They disbelieved, they were disobedient to the word of God. Both the prophetic word of God in the law and the prophets and in the embodied word of God, Jesus Christ. All that they saw. There's, there's nothing wrong in any of what he did. And I'm certain that there were some people around, still alive, walking around Israel, that were there 30 years earlier when he was born. Right? How many 30-year-olds we have? How many are in your 30s here? Three. Four. Okay, yeah, don't be ashamed of that. Okay. All right, some of you are here in your 30s. I remember you when you weren't, when you weren't adults. I'm still here, okay? And so at your birth, now one of them is my daughter, so that makes it real easy. I was there at her birth. Boy, frightening time. First one being born. Um, After, so when Jesus Christ is in his 30s, there are still people around, plenty of people around in their 50s who are there when these events happened, when John the Baptist's birth narrative, Jesus' birth narrative all happened. In fact, by that time, they would have become, guess what? The Sanhedrin, who all had to be a minimum of 40 years old. So these guys were alive as adults when Christ was being born. They very likely could have seen and met the Magi. Not unreasonable to assume that. Just 30 years earlier. These guys are in their 50s and 60s. They would have remembered it. I'm pretty sure I remember what happened 30 years ago. They knew the truth, but they rejected it. They were disobedient to the word that they had heard. Now, obviously I'm trying to demonstrate that it was not impossible for them because of some eternal plan of God in the past that they could not believe. And so we want to look at this terminology and see how it was previously presented to Israel and why it becomes their responsibility for their rejection, why it is for us to not only declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on Palm Sunday, but also to bow down and worship the one who is resurrected as our capstone uh, that we're going to look at next week. But let's go to Exodus. Let's go to Exodus to see the promises of God here. And this is really going to bring us, this is a transition us into the next verse as well. Did I give you the chapter, Exodus 19? 
Exodus 19 is going to give us the transitional uh, verses here. In Exodus 19, Moses is, is, this is part of the contact that Israel had historically with the one true and living God, personal contact. So let's pick up verse 3. It says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words to the people, of the people, to the Lord. So we have an offer of God. Please notice the conditional phrase. If, the condition is, you will have these benefits. And they're listed here, and they're very similar to what we're going to see in the next verse of 1 Peter chapter 2, right? They're almost the exact same benefits that God here offers to Israel, is offered to us through the cornerstone Jesus Christ, if we will simply be obedient to it. And I want to take you from believing to obedience here very shortly, uh, and why those two can be separated but shouldn't be in a true follower of Jesus Christ. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, and we have this list, you'll be a special treasure, you'll be a kingdom of priests, you'll be a holy nation, uh, you'll be my children. And so you have this offer, if you will be obedient to this covenant, to this offer that I put on the table here, you obey my voice and keep my covenant. I'll contend with you that that is what Peter has in mind when the fullness of that they did not obey the word. Jesus Christ being the voice, in addition to that, John the Baptist, we have they heard God speak. We're not just talking about at the baptismal where the the, this is my beloved son whom I well please. We're not just talking about the, the um, word just led the trans, thank you, that word. Everyone on the podcast filled it in too for me. Uh, and so the transfiguration of Christ, uh, because that was only a handful. Uh, but they heard God speak, because every time Jesus opens his mouth, they're listening to God. And he spoke. He's going to speak this entire week. He's going to go up there every day to the temple and teach. Did you obey his voice and his covenant? Now this is going to be old hat to you because you heard this over and over and over again as we went through the book of John because it was a concern of John. If it was a concern of John, a concern of Jesus, and now it's a concern of Peter, guess what it's a concern of? The scriptures are concerned. That you do not, that you understand the difference between believing and obeying. Because many believed in Jesus but did not obey Jesus. 
and you believe in Jesus, you will still be in condemnation. Did the Sanhedrin believe in a Messiah? Did they believe the scriptures? Did they believe Moses and the law? Did they believe the Genesis account of creation? Did they believe all these things? Certainly. They were going into the temple on a regular basis. They were participating in the sacrifices. All those things are supposed to point to the sacrifice, Jesus Christ. They knew full well, in fact, sometimes at least one of them prophesied that one man would have to die for everyone uh, himself. And even as he was rejecting the one who should die. And so they all believed all of this, but they didn't obey. And this is what the conditional statement. The conditional statement of God to Israel at the mountain was not if you believe, it's if you obey. If you obey my voice and my covenant, you obey what I tell you, which means that he's going to keep talking to you, which is kind of exciting. You know, that, that means you have a relationship. If someone's talking to you and lets you talk back to them, that's called a relationship. That's what he's offering. You're going to obey my voice. I'm going to keep talking to you. You keep obeying. And our covenant, which is our formal bonding agreement. So the covenant, your covenant of your marriage is the vows you took at one t moment in time. You're going to hold to the I'm going to obey my covenant. I vowed this to you, that I would love, honor, obey, that I would love, honor, provide, um, and till death do us part, and all those things. I, I, and you should, re, you should read those every now and then to remind yourself uh, of the covenant you agreed to your spouse. This is what I agreed to give my spouse. How am I doing? It's always good to renew the covenant, to re review it every now and then. You don't have to revow them. You just read, read them. Israel wasn't called to re-covenant themselves over and over again. They were just... Let's renew our covenant. Let's, let's stick to it. That was the covenant. But then there's the voice. That means you have this single event established, the relationship, but now we have relationship ongoing, and you need to be obedient to both. This is the condition of all these wonderful things of being a holy nation, a kingdom, a nation of priests, of being a, a special people, all these wonderful things that God offers, it was given, to, offered to Israel uh, based upon their obedience. And these people were disobedient. So we get to, back to 1 Peter out of Exodus, and we bring that understanding of the conditionality of it. And we already have seen it here in 1 Peter. We recognize it in verse 7, because it said, Therefore to you who believe... He is precious. So we understand belief, and then, um, but belief without obedience is empty. James talks about that. You say you believe? Well, where's your works to back it up? And when James talks about works, it's obedience in Exodus, it's obedience here. And so we are going to contrast two people, those who believe and those who disobey as opposites, which means that those who are disobeying don't really believe, and those who who are believing must also obey. In Peter's mind, they are not two separate concepts. You only obey if you are believe, or you only obey what you believe. Now, I believe certain things are bad for me, and so I act accordingly. Right? 
if I say I believe certain things are bad for me while I'm doing it, I don't really believe it. Not to the point of, of transforming my life. Now, there are some things I know are bad for me, but I don't believe it. I know sugar is bad for me. How many of you know that? Wow. We need to help the Elder Roberts out because they don't know that. They're just too tired to raise their hand. So you know sugar is bad for you, but you don't really believe it. Or you would expunge sugar out of your house and eradicate it. I've met a couple of people. David Brummett did that. I'm like, how are you living? He says, you really don't miss it after a while. I'm like, I don't believe you. You cannot live without it. Ice cream is a staple of life, and it requires sugar. Period. You see, my belief system and my knowledge don't always go along. How do you distinguish between what you know and what you believe is how you live? You say you believe in Jesus, what you really mean is, I know he existed, but you're not conforming your life to him as the capstone that you must match yourself to. So the conditional phrase there in Exodus comes into this, and we suddenly realize that what Peter means by believing is obedience to the word that's juxtapositioned against those who are disobedient to his voice and covenant, Israel. And they were not appointed to... Uh, to that somehow that they would disobey nor uh, that they would, but rather is, is more that you're going to be condemned for your disobedience. This is what condemns you. You had access and you rejected. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah, God gave them a warning shot. He gave them access. He introduced people of faith and, and evidence of the one true and living God and they rejected it and just kept getting more evil, and God says, okay, you're done. You're condemned. Israel's condemnation was not determined by God. Was it anticipated by God? Absolutely. Was it expected? Yes. But once it's determined, now you're off the hook because you didn't have a choice. Oh, that we'd be careful in using that word. They weren't appointed to believe any, or to unbelieve any more than others were appointed to believe. It is, those, it is those that are desiring after either obedience or disobedience. If you choose to disobey, the condemnation is yours. You had access. You rejected that access. Now you're judged according to how much access you had. Why was that judgment so so? So significant against Sodom and Gomorrah. They had Lot living there, a righteous man at the gates. Everyone that went in and out could have accessed a righteous man's philosophy of life. They could have asked him. They didn't. They had access to Abraham a little ways away. They saw that God was blessing them. They had access to him. They were delivered by him by Abraham. They had access to Melchizedek who came from Jerusalem and came over and, and they saw true worship. They recognized it all. And they rejected it. And that was their condemnation. They weren't destined 
determined by God to be condemned. They chose that. The condemnation upon people is because instead of recognizing the capstone and being full of praise, and you're going to see full of praise in two weeks. It should be next week. We're going to have to wait for two weeks. Instead of being full of praise, they were angry, grumbling, mumbling, wanting sin, and that's their condemnation. And they come into the same category as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, who are these people? These are the people that remember the offer of God in Exodus. You'll be my special treasure. Oh, isn't that nice? That should be on a meme or a card or something. You're my special treasure. Right? Sounds like a Valentine's card, right? You're my special treasure. Oh, I'm a special treasure. Well, it's conditioned. What is it when God says you'll be my special treasure? Whoa. Now, if I get it, that card from somebody, if my wife sends me a card that says, you're my special treasure, I'll say, aw, isn't that sentimental? But when God says, you're my special treasure, I go, whoa. This is intense. Special is set apart, sanctified, made holy. That's the word special. Treasure is that which is of great value to me, precious. You're going to be set apart and precious. So in fact, wives, your husbands should, according to God's word, make you a special treasure. You're set apart to him and made precious. That you're precious in his sight. These are words that we find in Peter, isn't it? And this brings us into the contrast. We have all the condemnation falling upon the people that reject it. Now we have a better idea of why and what's involved there, that it is a, it's on them, and equally is now on us, that we have now, by their rejection, an opportunity to access the very things that God offers to them in those very same words we find here in this passage in Peter. The very offer to the those people in that day at the, at the base of Mount Sinai uh, in Arabia that those people had, we have access to at the, this building of God that has been completed and the capstone's in place and now the offers are, you want to be part of this building? You want to be part of this nation? You want to be part of this people? You want to be a special treasure, a precious set-aside ones, and we've already seen some of these, so let's, look, re, let's go back and review some of these very quickly. And then, as I said, in two weeks, we'll get into the last three that are here in verse 9, uh, actually four. And, and, well, let's just read them all so you can see the very same verbiage. Verse 4, coming to him as the living stone, we are called. Verse 5, you also as living stones being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Wow. Verse 9, let's jump down to verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Do you see the same concepts and words there 
that was offered back there in Exodus. And Peter says, now we're going to see this fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And remember, we talked about this building of God being built up to its pinnacle, its capstone. Once the capstone is in place, the, the building isn't over. Now we lay in all of these other stones upon all that foundation, the beautification of it, the completion of it, the, the, the um, oh, the, the finishing touches. We all know that really the structure of the building isn't based upon the trim and paint, right? But we all do it. We all put the trim and paint. And we don't really need fabric as a floor. We all know that we want something more substantial than fabric as our floor. But we all put down the fabric, whether it's plastic or rugs or whatever. We put down a fabric because it makes it look like it's the finishing touches and we are the finishing touches of the building of God. We have the opportunity to be living stones attached to the foundation but conforming itself to the capstone Jesus Christ. We have access to be the living stones. Are we now the replacement of Israel? No, we're built upon Israel beautifying this completeness of the work of God toward men. All men, everywhere. And so we find that we are being built up a spiritual house, that we are living stones, that we are a holy priesthood. Those are the three that we find in verses 4 and 5. There are three more that we're going to pull out uh, and, and in verse 9 uh, in two weeks. Uh, you might say, well, there's four in verse 9, but the priesthood is repeated so while there are seven on the list, two of them are the same. One says a holy priesthood. The other one says a royal priesthood. And so we're going to tie into that uh, yet this morning. We've already talked about living stones extensively. We've even addressed the idea of a spiritual house. And I have touched on very, very briefly the holy priesthood. And we're going to revisit that because we have a royal priesthood here in verse 9. That we are now priests before God. And that is associated with an activity that we talked about several weeks ago. And I repeat it today as review for us to transition into this verse. And that is that priesthood is there for a purpose. And that purpose is to sing praises and lift up God Almighty. We see it in both passages Look up here uh, in verse 5. You are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there you're to offer up spiritual sacrifices. That's what a priest does. Leads in worship. You are all priests who are followers of Jesus Christ. You are all called on to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Not just to bring the sacrifices. Um, that's uh, Bringing the sacrifices is the act of all men, but the priests offer the sacrifices. So beyond just bringing the sacrifice, you are called to offer them. Don't bring it to me and say, Pastor, you offer it for us. No, you, <laughs> out of the priests of God, you together offer up sacrifices. That is why this format is so odd, frankly. And because it's not participatory enough. I'm preaching and you're not. Now, the Bible says, let not many of you be teachers because there's a higher account of counting. But if, if you're just passive here, and then you're not offering up anything. 
And that's why the Bible talks about that every member is a minister, that, every, that we all have a function in the body of Christ, because we're all here as priests to offer up sacrifices to God. Not to watch someone else offer up sacrifices, not even to bring something for someone else to offer, not to just be a supplier. You are there to participate in it actively. And that's why it's okay to say amen sometimes. Just saying. Okay. Thank you. I'm not one of those preachers who's going to ask you to say it. Um, I'm just telling you, you have permission to say it, okay? Because I, that's participating. You're allowed to participate. Not just in the singing part, but in all of it. And, 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 if, and if we're taking a, a, a snooze during it, you're not offering up anything. And that's why what you do Saturday night is so critical to what you offer on Sunday morning. So if you want better sermons, go to bed earlier, Saturday night. The sermons will get better. They really will. Not because I preach better, because you sleep well, because you'll be attentive more, your brain will be functioning, and you'll get a lot more out of it. You'll be offering it up yourself instead of just listening to someone else offer it. We are to offer up, because we are a holy priesthood. Holy is set aside, made special. And then if we go down to verse 9, again, what is it that, and a royal priesthood there, so not only holy but royal, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you. Do you see the connection? Up there, it says you're going to offer sacrifices. Down here, you're going to proclaim his praises. This is worship. You are brought into a priesthood by the powerful working of the capstone that as I conform myself to him, because I have to match up to his design, where I don't fit the building. That's why it says you're going to be knit together. You're going to fitted to this building. You just can't randomly say, I don't want to be in this part, I want to be over there, because you won't fit there. And you can't be the shape you want to be. You're going to be the shape for the design of the building. And so we find that we are to be fitted in, we're to be conformed ourselves to Jesus Christ, and as those who are not only believers but obedient, now uh, God's made me a priest. But recognize the condition, not just I believe, but I obey. Belief that leads to obedience, to conformity to Christ. As I conform to Christ now, I'm here to offer sacrifice, I'm here to declare praise. This is what I do. This is the purpose for which God brings us into his building, into his household to draw everyone's attention and to bring glory to the capstone, Jesus Christ. And whenever we want to draw attention to ourselves, we do injury to that purpose. Now, if I were to have a picture here of a wonderful white pyramid, sparkling white out in the desert of outside Cairo, and with all of its exterior fancy stones put on it uh, and made it this wonderful thing, and there was one stone that was red. What would you look at when you saw the building? Now we're talking about one stone. You might say, well, one stone's only this big. No, one stone is like over six feet tall and that wide, okay? So that's 
the size of stones we're talking about on the Great Pyramid in Egypt. So there was one red stone. What would you look at? The one red stone. It would just, why is that there? It doesn't fit. It doesn't conform itself. It brings attention to itself. But if all of them are the same, the natural inclination, as we talked about last week, is to draw attention to the capstone, which may have been gold. Some people contend it was actually gold. I should explain why it's not there, right? <laughs> Who's going to leave that up there, unguarded? Not in New Mexico, that's for sure. So, the Turks are like New Mexicans, so... They weren't going to leave that up there, no way. All attention goes to the capstone, not to all the, all the purpose of all these other stones is to draw attention. Our purpose as priests is to offer to God sacrifices and to declare his praise. This is the function of obedience because we are the recipients of this wonderful condition. I have the privileged position of priesthood. And you've been studying that a little bit this morning, I think, in, in Sunday school about the Levites and their privileged position that overcame a curse. It didn't dissolve the curse. It simply turned the curse into a blessing. This is the work of Jesus Christ to those who believe and evidence that belief by obedience. You'll turn the curse to your blessing. Oh, that we would recognize this role of priesthood that we all carry and accept personal responsibility, not only for obedience, but for our worship. How prepared were you to worship today coming in here? The degree to which you prepared yourself for worship evidences how much you came as a priest or as a person. Are we prepared? Can you imagine a priest being unprepared to offer up everyone's things? Here comes the sacrifices. Oh, I didn't, I didn't bring a knife with me. Did you bring a knife with you? I'm unprepared. Well, I got one around here somewhere. We got we to gotta bleed this sacrifice out. We've got to take it apart. We've got to take the offer. We've got to do all this. Oh, I forgot to light a fire on the altar. Now we know what God thinks about that because two of, of uh, Aaron's sons kind of came unprepared and just kind of threw things together their own way. God says, you're dead. You want to take personal responsibility for your worship, then be participatory. You are there. You are here. You are called as a priest to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are called upon to come and to proclaim the praises of him who called you. That is your role. Not the clergy. And this is borne out in other passages where it talks about that we are the body of Christ. It's borne out in passages in, in, in Paul's writings where he talks about that we, we all minister to one another till we come to unity of faith. Is there some preachers and pastors, uh, teachers, evangelists? Yes. Um, and they're there to assist us, not to be us. They're there to equip 
the saints for the work of the ministry. Which means that we are all priests, and while I'm really just the equipment guy, you know, I'll make sure that the equipment's clean, but you got to use it. How do we do that? By obedience. Further obedience is the sacrifice of praise. And so we participate through preparation, through being set apart, setting ourselves apart, and saying, this is a precious thing to me to gather in his name and to worship, and I'm going to be prepared for this. I'm going to be engaged in this. I'm going to be ready for this. You know what I'm going to preach on next week, right? Only Chris knows. I already told you, if you were paying attention, I already told you I'm going to preach on, I'm going to skip the rest of these three of a chosen generation and a holy nation and special people, which means I'm going to skip down to the next verse. You could prepare. I'm preparing. I've been preparing for several weeks for this. It's Next week is Resurrection Sunday. Are you prepared? I dare say you're going to take more time getting ready for the meal than getting for the physical meal afterwards than for the spiritual meal before it. How do I prepare? How do I participate as a priest? Well, what do people ask of me as a pastor? Pray for me. So I'm going to tell you, pray for me. Because you're a priest. You should be praying for one another. Paul, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. Does that sound like a priest? No, because as a priest, you go to him and say, pray for me. The priest says, I'll pray for you, I'll pray for you. That is part of our preparation. Our study of God's word, our submission to the Holy Spirit, our walk in righteousness and in truth, that we look at the qualification standards for leadership in the church, and we just say, that's for them. We don't just say, that's for them. You say, that's God's ideal for me. Whether he has called me to preach or not is irrelevant. Here's the standard of God for preachers. And if we're all priests, this is the standard for all of us. And that's why it's worthwhile for you to study 1 Timothy 3. And to try to conform yourself to it. It's the ideal. Husband and wife. Not lover of money. Give your children in submission. Go through the list. Having a good reputation in the world. These are the standards as a priest. And this is a privileged position we have. I'm not trying to twist your arm with guilt to do this. I want you to do it in a recognition that I I am privileged to be a priest before God. And that that might be the highest calling of my life is to functionally, to functionally be a priest within the context of my home, within the context of my workplace, within the context of even my church, that I am here to be a priest of serving and ministering God's grace to others, to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to him. I invite you to prepare yourself for the next Lord's Day. You only have a few days to do that. 
you're preparing yourself, you're going to go shopping for some of those food items, you're going to be thinking about how to cook them and prepare how to keep them warm, how to serve them, how to present them, all of that. Similarly, engage yourself spiritually. What do you, how, what, what do you want to offer up as we celebrate the resurrection next week? You have six days to get ready. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for all that is ours. We recognize that if we say we believe in you, that we must also be obedient to you, that in that state of obedience that we are privileged to be living stones, part of your building, and priests offering up sacrifice of praise. Lord, help us to take these things as precious to ourselves, knowing that we have become precious to you. That we might lay hold of these and give you the glory, even as we do. Lord, we know that we are called to worship you not just one day or a couple hours a week, but for the balance of our few days on the earth. That we are just, our whole life is the length of a flower's bloom, according to your word. Lord, help us to recognize the brevity of life, that we might lay hold of every opportunity to glorify your name, to declare your praises, and to offer up our sacrifices to you with holy hands to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.